Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. After Britain declared war against Germany on the 3rd of September 1939, the first liberation took place, starting in British prisons. With the country desperate to clear its cells for the true enemies of the state, such as spies, traitors, looters and deserters, and in short supply of eligible young men for conscription, any prisoners with three months or less to serve were granted their freedom. Buoyed by a sense of national pride, some prisoners enlisted, but others did not. And with the city's short unexperienced police officers, rationing enforced, and with basic essentials such as soap and fuel being sold at vastly overinflated prices, some ex-cons saw wartime as the perfect opportunity for criminal enterprise and even honest people turned to crime under the cover of the blackout. Between 1939 and 1945, the crime rate in England and Wales rose by 57%, with the number of reported murder cases increasing from 280 in 1939 to 490 in 1945, and with death, injury and disappearance being a daily occurrence in most wartime cities, many murders were impossible to prove. But four horrifying deaths over four nights in four different parts of London's West End were unmistakable as murders committed by a serial sexual sadist whose attacks were random, bloody and brutal. And although by Thursday the 12th of February 1945 on the fifth day of his five-day killing spree, only the badly mutilated bodies of Evelyn Hamilton and Evelyn Oatley had been found, with Margaret Florence Lowe still lying undiscovered. Barely hours before the agonising death of his final victim, Doris Junet. In one night, having met them just one hour and 200 feet apart, as his bloodlust escalated, the West End's most prolific spree killer would attack two more women. 
My name is Michael. I am your tour guide. This is Murder Mile. And I present to you part five of the full, true, and untold story of the Blackout Ripper. Today, I'm standing in Piccadilly Circus, W1, an iconic London landmark which interconnects the roads of Regent Street, Coventry Street, Shaftesbury Avenue, Piccadilly and Haymarket. Built in 1819, under its original name of Regent Circus, it later became Piccadilly Circus, after the area it covered, coined after local tailor Robert Baker's infamous 17th century collar called the Piccadillo. And that's about as exciting as it gets. Featuring the infamous Criterion Theatre, the London Pavilion, the Ghost of Tower Records, two truly hideous tourist attractions where, for an insulting amount of money, you too can stare at badly sculpted plastic replicas of real people, and a statue which every idiot calls Eros, even though it's not Eros, it's Antiros, the angel of Christian charity, but then again being educated is so overrated. As everyone stares at Piccadilly's infamous neon advertising and feels an overwhelming urge to scoff fatty chicken corpses, drink sugary piss, or smell like a footballer's arse, as they suddenly realise that Piccadilly Circus is nothing more than a world-famous semicircular traffic contraflow, where every year millions of dipsticks flock to watch traffic. Oh look, there's a truck. Oh look, there's a bus. Oh look, there's a bike. Oh look, there's an accident. Oh look, blood. Oh look, brains. Oh look, entrails. As a tourist takes a selfie and says, Oh look, there's an Albanian immigrant wearing a cheap Yoda mask who's pretending to float. Ooh, doesn't that look fun? But actually, for us murder aficionados, Piccadilly Circus is fascinating. As it's here that Doris June was heading for her date with the captain, where both Evelyn Oatley and Margaret Florence Lowe were last seen alive, where two local prostitutes, Laura Denmark and Molly de Santos Alves, met a red-headed corporal and a blue-eyed, fair-haired airman, and waved goodbye to Evelyn Oatley just hours before her death. And yet, it was here, on Thursday the 12th of February 1942, at 8pm, where the Blackout Ripper would meet his fourth victim, and her name was Greta Haywood. As always, being a little too eager, and, if she was honest with herself, enthusiastic to escape her home in Kingsbury, northwest London, which she shared with her soon-to-be ex-husband. 30-year-old Margaret Mary Theresa Hayward, whose friends called her Greta, had hopped on the Metropolitan Line to Baker Street, changed onto the Bakerloo Line to Piccadilly Circus, and was stood outside of the Criterion Theatre 
a full hour too early for her date, with nothing to do but wait. With the shop shut, she couldn't blow an hour by browsing. With only two films on at the flicks, being Betty Davis in The Man Who Came to Dinner and Will Hay in The Black Sheep of Whitehall, she didn't want to waste a shilling watching a newsreel, a cartoon and half of a pre-feature five-reel B-movie. With the Criterion Theatre having been requisitioned by the BBC to perform live radio for the duration of the war, and tonight's broadcast being the brutally dull music show, Take Your Choice, followed by the BBC Salon Orchestra, conducted by Leslie Bridgewater. Greta was already bored of waiting, but she didn't fancy falling into a coma. And even though Café Monaco was only on the opposite side of Piccadilly Circus, being packed full of sozzled servicemen, as an attractive blonde female sitting by herself, her chance of enjoying a quiet drink there was zero. And so it was there, at the bottom of the stairs of the Criterion Theatre, with time ticking by, her date an hour away, and Greta all out of options, that a blue-eyed, fair-haired airman approached her with a polite and pleasant proposition she simply couldn't refuse. Excuse me, are you waiting for someone? The airman asked, in an accent which, although well-spoken, and with the appearance of wealth, class and status, had the unmistakable twang and reassuring hints of North Yorkshire, where Greta was from. Sensing a pickup attempt, she brushed off his request with the truth that she was awaiting a date with an army captain, her clever ploy being to pull rank on this inferior airman, the distinctive white flash on his side cap suggesting he was still a cadet. But with the snow turning to drizzle, 9pm still an hour away, and the airman seeming harmless enough, with a sweet smile, a kind face, and a gentlemanly offer that I could buy you a drink while you wait for your friend. She thought it would certainly pass the time, and in his presence, she felt safe. The Criterion Theatre on Piccadilly Circus began life in the late 1800s as a grand concert hall full of cafes, galleries, and a fine dining restaurant in an opulent ballroom, which played host to stars, artists, and royals. But after years of neglect, by 1942, the restaurant had descended into being simply another shoddy pickup joint for sailors, soldiers, and airmen. It was called Brasserie Universal, but it was more appropriately known as the Universal Brothel or the Brass Ass. As always, the bar of Brasserie Universal was rammed with the sticky bustle of hot bodies as British and Canadian servicemen drank, danced and dry-humped their latest squeeze or conquest. And with the air thick with lewd chatter, fast jazz, cigarette smoke 
and the occasional unpleasant whiff of jizz. As Greta and the airman drank a whiskey together, it was hard to hear themselves think. And as much as he failed to flirt with her, by telling her she was beautiful, and trotting out other equally unimaginative and wretch-worthy chatterblinds, she reminded him of her impending date, he politely apologised, and invited her for a spot of dinner in the quieter, calmer, and less boisterous ambiance of the Salted Almond Cocktail Bar in nearby Trocadero. So with 50 minutes still to go, feeling a little bit peckish, having not eaten since lunch, and with the airman having agreed to escort her back to the brasserie by 9pm, a time which suited him fine, as the rules of the RAF dictated that he had to be back in his Regent's Park billets by 10.30pm, Greta headed out to supper with the unnamed airman. He didn't seem like a bad sort, Greta thought. Yes, he was a little tipsy, but he wasn't rude, crude or abusive. Yes, his knuckles on his left hand were scraped, but being an airman, he probably did a manual job like a mechanic. And yes, he was a little forward in his approach, but looking rather dashing in his long military grey coat, his shiny black rubber-soled boots, his starched blue tunic with matching blue belt, his neat brown shirt and straightened tie, his side cap emblazoned with the insignia of the Royal Air Force, and slung over his left shoulder was a black gas respirator in a beige canvas bag, the kind of gas mask that all military personnel were required to carry. She knew nothing bad would happen to her, as on the middle finger of his left hand, he wore a gold wedding band and having offered her a cigarette she spied a small black and white photo of a pretty blonde lady hidden inside his silver cigarette case which she thought was engraved with her initials of LW. The Salted Almond Cocktail Bar situated in the Trocadero's original location on the corner of Shaftesbury Avenue and Great Windmill Street, just off the northeast corner of Piccadilly Circus, would have been a good choice for a quiet spot of supper, as being owned by J. Lyon and Sons, creators of corner house tea rooms such as Maison Lyonnaise, it prided itself on being safe, calm and pleasant for women. But sadly, as the night drew on, the same could not be said for Greta's new companion. Being a few whiskies in, with supper looking unlikely, and his disarmingly charming tone having shifted to that of being a lecherous oaf, the airman lustily inquired of Greta, Are you a naughty girl? Ignoring her plea that she wasn't a prostitute, had never been and had no plans to be, and bragged that, I'm not broke, look, as he pried open his wallet, which was stuffed thick with 30 one-pound notes, almost a thousand pounds today. 
Getting petulant as Greta batted away his advances, he stated, I don't think there's time for supper now, and quickly piped up with, Come out for dinner with me tomorrow evening. And with Greta eager to leave, she reluctantly agreed to a date, impressed upon him that sex would not happen, and wrote on a slip of paper her telephone number, which was Collindale 6622, which he then pocketed. And as he huffed, All right, if you don't want to, I can't make you. But you seem like a nice girl and I do really want you. Greta brushed him off again. And as promised, at 8.45pm, he escorted her back for her 9pm date. With the blackout in full force, with every light dipped, dulled or turned off, and even the illuminated signs of Piccadilly Circus switched off, the streets would have been in near darkness, as Greta was guided out of the Trocadero, taking the brisk three-minute walk straight down the bustling throng of Shaftesbury Avenue and across Piccadilly Circus, back to the entrance of the Criterion Theatre. But then again, the airman didn't take the most direct route, and with Greta having been subjected to a tirade of moody drunken mumblings by the airman, having bragged that he had once knocked a girl out. She didn't argue with him for fear of incurring his wrath, as he led the nervous lady down the thinner, quieter and darker side streets to the brasserie's back entrance. And as they entered German Street, an almost pitch-black, empty side street behind Piccadilly Circus, as Greta pulled out of her handbag an eight-inch metal torch, to see her way, and possibly alert a passing policeman to her need for help. The airman snatched the torch from her hand, bulking, you won't be needing that, as he casually strolled past the brasserie's back entrance. With her heart racing, her eyes wide and her mouth dry, as the airman led her south down St Alban Street, a narrow alley leading away from the brasserie, he expressed his wish to give her a goodnight kiss. And in a chillingly eerie statement, possibly uttered barely four nights before to a painfully shy 41-year-old pharmacist in Montague Place. He said, Aren't there any air raid shelters nearby? But as he led her into the ominous silence of the equally dark St. James's Market, in the cold shadow of the captain's cabin pub, the airman dragged Greta into an unlit doorway. Removing his RAF-issue gas respirator in its beige canvas bag from his left shoulder and placing it on the ground, the airman pulled Greta's trembling body close as he started to kiss her. The fetid stench of tobacco on his breath as he rammed his tongue deep into her mouth. And as his hands grabbed at her hips, tugged at her blouse and groped at her breasts, She pushed him away, gasping, 
You mustn't. You mustn't do that. But with his passion inflamed, and not being a man who took no for an answer, with an odd glint in his eyes, having placed both hands on her quivering cheeks, she thought, having heard her plea, he was either forthcoming with an apology, or a tender but friendly kiss. But as his left hand slipped down her face, slowly caressing her neck, he tightly gripped her throat and squeezed, all the while muttering, You won't! You won't! Until her vision went black. Nobody heard her screams. Nobody saw her face. Nobody found any weapons. And at 9pm, on Thursday the 12th of February 1942, at the back of the Criterion Theatre on Piccadilly Circus, barely two hours before the brutal, shocking and sadistic murder of Doris Junet, Margaret Mary Theresa Hayward, known to her friends as Greta, became the fourth victim of the Blackout Ripper. Just like the others, she was a lone female. Just like the others, she was attacked in private. Just like the others, she was robbed. But unlike the others, she didn't die. Hearing shoes scuffling, a muffled croaky voice, and seeing a torch frantically bobbing, as 24-year-old night porter John Shine approached St Albans Street, he spotted a pair of women's legs slumped on the wet floor, sticking out of an unlit doorway. Sensing something was wrong, John Shine shouted, Police! at the top of his lungs, panicking the ominous shape which loomed over the collapsed lady. And before he could do anything, the blackout ripper disappeared into the darkness. And although she was unconscious, Greta was alive. But did her survival lead to the death of another woman? At a little after 10pm, barely an hour later, with his heart pumping, his nerves tingling, and his bloodlust unsated. Having sunk several more whiskies, the slightly dishevelled airman spotted a lone female standing in the darkened doorway of Odenio's restaurant, on the nearby corner of Regent Street and Piccadilly Circus, where just two days before, Evelyn Oatley was last seen alive. Being a tall, slim and attractive lady, with bobbed flame-red hair, luminous pale skin, stunning grey eyes, and dressed in a black tailored coat, skirt and hat, he was instantly aroused by her. As a 34-year-old soon-to-be divorcee, who had succumbed to sex work simply to pay the rent, she reluctantly hopped in a taxi with a drunken airman and took him back to her Paddington flat. 
and although she was known locally as Mrs. King, her real name was Catherine Mulcahy. Unlike before, the sozzled airman wasn't in the mood for small talk, and having paid her two one-pound notes up front for sex, roughly £60 today, Catherine sighed, I wish I could make £5 tonight, at which he flashed his bulging wallet, peeled off three further one-pound notes for her, and in the back seat of the taxi, having got down on his knees, lifted up her skirt, and pulled aside her knickers, he began to kiss her genitals. As their taxi drove west along Oxford Street, passing Selfridges and Doris Junet. Having politely pacified his advances in her soft Irish brogue, stating, Don't be silly, we'll be at my flat soon enough. Catherine was intimidated by his eagerness as their taxi continued up Edgware Road, along Sussex Gardens and stopped just shy of Paddington Station, outside of 29 Southwick Street. As the taxi pulled away, a bitterly cold wind blew down the dark and strangely quiet side street. And although Catherine shivered, it wasn't just the icy gust which riddled her skin with goosebumps. And as she led the amorous airman off the side street, under a darkened archway, and into the eerie silence of Southwick Mews, she unlocked her front door and welcomed into her flat the Blackout Ripper. With Catherine having been out for most of the day, and a winter frost having settled on the icy snow, her small second-floor flat was chillingly cold, and being only sparsely furnished with few comforts, just the basics, like a bed with a sheet, a table with a candlestick, a washstand with a pack of razor blades, and a wardrobe full of clothes, hats, curling tongs, and a collection of kitchen cutlery, she popped a shilling in the coin slot of her gas fire to warm the flat up as they undressed. Being naked, all except for her boots, with her toes too cold to be exposed, Catherine was desperate for the sex to be over and done with quickly. But with the airman ignoring her pleas, the unrolled condom in her hand, and his penis still flaccid. He continued fondling her breasts and kissing her vagina. Lying flat on her back, her trembling body sprawled diagonally across the bed. The airman never once attempted to have sex with Catherine. Instead, straddling her thin, pale torso, with his knees either side of her hips, and an odd glint in his wide blue eyes. He placed both hands on her quivering cheeks, as if to tenderly kiss her. 
but as his left hand slowly caressed the nap of her neck, he tightly gripped her throat and squeezed until her vision went black. But as a feisty Irish woman, raised by a drunken father, an absent mother, and several brothers, who had suffered at the hands of an abusive husband, and had given her only child up for adoption, although timid, Catherine was a born fighter. And having yanked both of his thumbs back so hard that the bone almost snapped, making him squeal. Having freed her leg, Catherine booted him squarely in the chest, kicking her assailant right off the bed. Not wishing to spend a second longer with this maniac, Catherine ran from the flat, screaming, Murder! Police! Banging on the doors of her neighbours, Agnes Morris and Kitty McQuillan, who came to the naked woman's aid. But he didn't run. Instead, seeming unflustered, almost as if nothing had actually happened, as the airman calmly dressed, fixed his hair, and sparked up a cigarette, being cocky in his lack of haste, he casually apologised to Catherine, tossed her five one-pound notes and left. The time was roughly 11pm. The date was Thursday the 12th of February 1942 and with his anger rising, his hatred fuming and his bloodlust unsated, having turned right and strolled down Southwick Street, the Blackout Ripper disappeared into the darkness of Sussex Gardens and the home of his final victim. But unlike his other attacks, this time there were screams. This time there were witnesses. This time they had seen his face. And this time he had left behind evidence. Roughly one mile away, in a dark alley at the back of Piccadilly Circus, having sustained cuts, bruises, concussion, and a fractured larynx, although she struggled to breathe, with the aid of the night porter, John Shine, Greta Hayward made her way to West End Central Police Station, where she gave a description of the man who attacked her. Although a little fuzzy at first, Greta quickly compiled a detailed description of her unnamed attacker, stating that he was a British airman, aged 30s-ish, 5 foot 9 inches tall, clean-shaven, soft features, light blue eyes, slim build, fair-haired, dressed in a Royal Air Force blue uniform, with a long black greatcoat, a woolen side cap with a white cadet's emblem, 
and over his left shoulder he carried a black gas respirator in a beige canvas bag. And although her depiction was highly accurate, with the attacks all having occurred during World War II, that description could easily match one of thousands of airmen in and around London that day. But one detail was unique. In his haste to escape, Greta's attacker had dropped his gas mask. And although it was nothing more than a standard-issue gas respirator, made in a generic black rubber, and carried in a nondescript beige canvas bag, which was mass-produced, cheaply made, and widely distributed to all military personnel across the entire British Armed Forces. Inside his gas mask, for fear of confusing it with the millions of others which dotted about the country, in black permanent marker, he had written his Royal Air Force serial number. A very unique six-digit code, which is identifiable to just one person. And his name was Gordon Frederick Cummins. Between the 9th and 12th of February, 1942, a sadistic sexual maniac stalked London's West End, brutally murdering four women, Evelyn Hamilton, Evelyn Oakley, Margaret Florence Lowe, and Doris Junet, and strangling two others, Greta Hayward and Catherine Mulcahy. And as much as the government kept a lid on any stories which could cause hysteria, None of the Blackout Ripper's killings made front-page news. Instead, they were relegated to small columns hidden on the inside pages. The first recorded use of the term Blackout Ripper was just one day after Evelyn Oakley's death. But with few papers taking up this salacious moniker, even though it was uttered amongst the locals, almost as if he was a bogeyman, as soon as the trial was over, the case files were archived, the story was lost, the victims were forgotten, and the Blackout Ripper didn't reappear in print until the mid-1950s, when a resurgence in true crime led to these stories being sensationally and inaccurately retold. And although the Blackout Ripper had echoes of the infamous Jack the Ripper case 54 years earlier, by the turn of 1942, not only had cinema audiences become incredibly savvy, having been raised on a diet of sensational thrillers and the tired cliches of the tabloid press, but by living under the constant threat of the Nazi invasion, with a terrifying barrage of bombs raining down from the skies, soldiers and civilians being slaughtered in their millions, and ordinary people witnessing death 
on their doorsteps on an almost daily basis. In the grand scheme of things, the bloody murders of the Blackout Ripper were insignificant during wartime London. And so, once again, one of Britain's most sadistic spree killers disappeared into the darkness, and his name was almost forgotten. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, this is Murder Mile, and I present to you part six of the full, true and untold story of the Blackout Ripper. Today, I'm standing outside West End Central Police Station on Savile Row, W1. A tall, grey, drab, but imposing seven-storey concrete monstrosity just off Regent Street. And although police stations are supposed to instill into a nervous victim a reassuring sense of safety, having a flat, featureless facade like a mummified face a multitude of black shiny windows like a spider's eye, and an ominously wide main door, lying dead centre, like the dark gaping mouth of a starving snake. West End Central evokes an intake of breath, a tightness in the chest, and the spackling of the anal sphincter. Built in 1940 to support local police stations like Vine Street, Bow Street and Great Marlborough Street, as a wartime crime wave swept through the city. Sadly, West End Central is now defunct as a working police station. And although it is still used as a local support unit, being full of coppers, panda cars and riot vans, the glory days are now gone, and the good old London Bobby has been relegated to posing for tourist photos letting pregnant ladies whittle in their helmets and having American tourists repeatedly ask them Excuse me, sir, can you tell me the way to Leicester Square? and other such places that they deliberately mispronounce just to piss us off such as Edinburgh Worcestershire and of course Lugerberg which for those of us who actually speak English, is Loughborough. And yet, although West End's central police station is now nothing more than an admin block, it was here, on Thursday the 12th of February 1942, where Greta Hayward gave the police a description of the man who had attacked her but little would she know that these details would lead to the capture of one of London's most prolific spree killers, who was known as the Blackout Ripper. The mug of milky tea was warm and soothing as Greta raised it to her trembling lips most of which she spilled as her hands violently shook. And yet as reassuring as its sweetness was, 
Even swallowing the smallest of gulps caused Greta to wince in pain, as the tea trickled down her swollen throat, and an ominous purpley-yellow outline of a left hand formed across her bruised neck. And although her attacker was still out there, somewhere, possibly prowling the back streets of Soho and Piccadilly, Inside interview room two of West End Central Police Station, Greta was safe. As she gave a detailed description to Detective Inspector Clarence Jeffrey, a semi-senior detective whose remit was muggings, robberies and violent assaults, which this most definitely was, as well as murders. So, for D.I. Jeffrey... With divisional surgeon Dr. Alexander Baldy having confirmed that her injuries were consistent with strangulation, with Greta having provided an accurate sketch of the airman, aided by John Shine's credible witness statement, and the swift discovery of her 8-inch torch and her stolen handbag, with the paper money missing, although none of these items retained any fingerprints owing to the wet weather, Greta's attacker was quickly identified by the unique military serial number he had written in indelible ink inside his Royal Air Force-issued gas respirator. With a kind smile, tired eyes and a world-weary face, which had barely slept in several days, as every time he blinked, the ripped, splayed and mutilated body of Evelyn Oatley flashed before his eyes, having witnessed the horror on Wardour Street just two days before. D.I. Jeffrey reassured Greta that this was an open and shut case, and they should have her attacker in custody by the morning. Having deduced that the airman was stationed at the nearby RAF Aircrew Reception Centre in Regent's Park, D.I. Jeffrey telephoned Corporal William Crook, the orderly corporal in charge of Abbey Lodge, where the aircrew were stationed. He confirmed that the serial number of 525-987 belonged to leading aircraftman Gordon Frederick Cummings, a 24-year-old blue-eyed, fair-haired airman, and that being under investigation for a possible robbery and assault, D.I. Jeffrey instructed the orderly corporal to place Cummings under arrest until the arrival of the police. Of course, to D.I. Jeffrey, there were elements of this case which didn't make any sense, such as, why would a total stranger want to attack Greta Haywood? Why a robber would treat his victim to supper first? Why, if this was an attempted murder, did he not bring any weapons with him? And why there were several scrapes and a few odd fragments of grey brick mortar inside of his gas respirator, which didn't match any wall found in or near where Greta had been attacked. But then again, not all cases are neat. So... As D.I. Jeffrey prepared the necessary paperwork for the attack on Greta Haywood, as a seasoned detective, he knew that if this actually ended up in court, 
which many cases, for various reasons, don't. Even with the evidence and the statements they had, the best Cummings would be convicted of would be the lesser charge of grievous bodily harm and sentenced to a few months in prison. Or more likely, with him being an airman, this being wartime, and especially if this was his first offence, he may get off with just a fine. But first, they would need to find him. As with Gordon Frederick Cummings not asleep in his bed, and the logbook at Abbey Lodge confirming that he hadn't returned from a night out, that meant that somewhere across the West End, still stalking the city streets, was the Blackout Ripper. It may seem strange, sinister, or even stupid, but at 2am, on Friday the 13th of February 1942, barely a few hours after he had committed a brutal murder, and two attempted murders, that Gordon Frederick Cummings would return to Piccadilly Circus. But that's exactly what he did. By that ungodly hour, Piccadilly Circus was dark, cold, and deathly quiet. So with the streets speckled with a smattering of police constables, on the lookout for anyone suspicious, whether muggers eyeing up drunken marks, peepers perving through sexy ladies' keyholes, and lost servicemen who accidentally ask for directions from lone women who just happened to be prostitutes. It's almost inconceivable that Cummins would flock here, like some kind of homicidal pigeon. But he did. I mean, he could have picked literally anywhere in the whole of London's West End to return to. But instead, being slightly drunk, strangely bored, and more than a little arrogant, Cummings headed back to Piccadilly Circus, the place where murdered prostitutes Evelyn Oatley and Margaret Florence Lowe were last seen, where mutilated sex worker Doris Junet was heading that night, where that very evening he had picked up feisty Irish woman Catherine Mulcahy, who kicked six shades of shit out of his guts. And where, just five hours earlier, in a doorway just one street away, he had robbed, assaulted and strangled Greta Haywood. A woman who was still alive, had seen his face, knew his history and at whose feet he had dropped his ridiculously unique gas respirator, and who now was barely a six-minute walk away at West End Central Police Station. And yet still, like a bad smell in a blocked toilet, Cummings returned to Piccadilly Circus. Oh yes! Piccadilly Circus was the perfect place for a wanted murderer to blend in. If you excuse the fact that he had 
cuts on his left hand, scuff marks on his boots, that the police had his missing gas respirator, and would soon have the belt to his blue tunic, which he had misplaced in Catherine Mulcahy's flat. And as long as you entirely ignore the fact that his blue Royal Air Force uniform, which he was wearing right at that very moment, was splattered with the blood of Doris Junet. There was nothing suspicious about Gordon Frederick Cummings at all. So it made perfect sense for him to be in Piccadilly Circus. But it was there on the north side of Piccadilly Circus, right outside of the notorious Café Monaco, that he picked up another prostitute, hopped in a taxi with her, and in a move which, once again, was either strange, sinister, or just plain stupid, he headed back to her flat, which, given the irony of where he'd just been, was quite possibly in the second worst place in the whole of the West End for the Blackout Ripper to return to. Her flat was in Paddington and her name was Doreen Lytton. As the taxi chugged back along the desolate darkness of the West End, Doreen Lytton a recently married mother of two, housewife and part-time prostitute, sat in the taxi's back seat with Cummins, unable to see the deep red blood on his dark blue clothes, as in the darkness, everything looked black. Having slugged back one too many whiskies, he was clearly tipsy, But unlike her usual clients, who, having got her alone, on the back seat, in a taxi, would feverishly fondle and grope this lone female to satisfy their strange sexual urges. But this one seemed different. He was quiet, calm and distant. And as he stared out of the window, watching the world go by, as the taxi passed by Maison Lyonnaise and turned right onto the all-too-familiar site of Edgware Road, Cummings politely inquired, Can I spend an hour with you? I'll give you three pound. To which Doreen said, Yeah, okay. As in his company, she felt safe. Moments later, The taxi dropped them off at Porchester Place, two streets south of Catherine Mulcahy's flat at 28 Southwick Street, where the police had recently been, taken a statement and picked up the missing belt to his blue tunic, and three streets southeast of 187 Sussex Gardens, where the mutilated body of Doris Junet would lay undiscovered for the next 17 hours. And as they walked through to Polygon Mews, Doreen unlocked her door and welcomed into her flat the Blackout Ripper.
being a small first-floor flat rented solely for sex work. It was basic, drab, and fitted with only the bare essentials, such as a bed with a sheet, a table with a candlestick, a washstand with a packet of razor blades, and a wardrobe full of clothes, hats, curling tongs, and a collection of kitchen cutlery. And having put the pounds on the mantelpiece, behind a framed photograph of her two beloved babies, Doreen popped a shilling in the coin slot of her gas fire to warm up the flat as she started to undress. But being slumped on her bed, his tired face all sunken, his bloodshot eyes all sullen, and expelling a deep exhale of exhaustion, Cummins shook his head and calmly said, That won't be necessary. I only want to talk. I've been drinking too much. And so, being unable to perform, Doreen sat in her flat, on an armchair, opposite the West End's most prolific spree killer and serial sexual sadist. And for an hour, over a nice warm cup of tea, they just sat and chatted. Doreen would later state that he was polite, calm and courteous, a real gentleman who sat quietly, listened intently and truly seemed to care about her life, as with a genuinely warm smile and a twinkle in his eyes. She showed him the photograph of her beloved family, a husband, a wife and their two kids. And the more that they talked, with her maternal instincts kicking in, Doreen felt pity for him. During that very pleasant hour together, nothing immoral took place, and they both remained clothed, seated and apart. Being honest with Doreen, Cummings apologised for his lack of libido and reassured her that he definitely did fancy her, but that the real reason for being here was simply to pass an hour or two, as on tonight of all nights, he was in big trouble. Of course, during this conversation, he never once mentioned that he was a deeply disturbed sexual sadist, who over the last few days had strangled and tortured four women, sliced, ripped and filleted their skins, had taken a deeply disturbing level of pleasure in disfiguring their genitals, into which he had inserted a series of phallic household objects, having then posed each woman like morbid mannequins, stolen a creepy collection of souvenirs, and let two women live, who, just like Doreen, knew most of his life story. No, instead, Cummins was concerned with more pressing matters. As being several hours late for his 10.30 curfew back at Abbey Lodge, having misplaced a blue belt to his RAF tunic and lost his serial-numbered gas respirator, 
all of which were chargeable offences under the Royal Air Force's Code of Conduct. Leading aircraftman Gordon Frederick Cummings, who was only in London on a three-week course, was less concerned with his brutal murders and was more concerned about these minor misdemeanours as any black mark against his name could seriously jeopardise his chance of ever becoming an RAF pilot. With the hour almost up and his three pounds spent, taking pity on his plea, Doreen handed the airman an almost identical gas respirator in a beige canvas bag that she had found just one week before. He thanked her for the tea, took her phone number saying that he'd love to see her again, and at a little before four o'clock in the morning, Doreen Lytton waved goodbye to the blackout ripper as he disappeared into the darkness. Today, Abbey Lodge, with its Art Deco stylings, wrought iron gates, and intricate gold inlaid doors, is a stunning six-storey Georgian mansion block for the supremely wealthy. Situated in the exclusive northwest corner of Regent's Park, with flats selling for just a measly three to twelve million pounds each. But in 1942, having been requisitioned by the military, Abbey Lodge was known as Number 3 Reception Centre, where trainee pilots for the Royal Air Force were stationed. Although stationed at Abbey Lodge, Cummings resided at the newly built apartments on St James's Close, on the north side of Regent's Park. But with armed sentries positioned on all the doors, added security patrolling the perimeter, especially the fire escapes, which airmen, having missed their curfews, would often climb up and try and sneak into their flats unnoticed, with a higher risk of him being shot if he tried to break in. With no other options, Cummings approached the main entrance of Abbey Lodge. From the darkness of the doorway, into his startled face, the hollow muzzle of a Lee Enfield .303 rifle was aimed, as air cadets Civil Wolfenden and David Alfred Arch challenged Cummins. Playing it cool, Cummings beamed a winning smile, showed the sentries his identification card, clarified his name, rank and serial number, and following strict orders to detain Cummings on site, he was swiftly marched into the guardroom. Entering the guardroom, Cummings gulped, knowing he was in deep shit, when he was confronted by Corporal Charles Johnson, the orderly sergeant with an overpowering smell of body odour and starch, whose long thin fingers strummed on the battered logbook, and Corporal William Crook, the fresh-faced, squat-framed and spud-headed orderly corporal who had taken the call from D.I. Jeffrey of West End Central. Feigning ignorance, having smeared on his best poker face, Cummins casually inquired, What's all this about? To which orderly corporal Crook replied, A woman's been attacked in Piccadilly. 
Your respirator was found at the scene. But without missing a beat, Cummings let out an audible sigh and uttered, Oh, thank God for that. He tapped the black gas respirator in the beige canvas bag, which was slung over his left shoulder. And having reassured both orderlies that this was nothing more than a silly mix-up, Cummins was escorted on a 15-minute walk back to his billets. Still partially under construction, Cummings was billeted at St. James Close, a seven-storey brown-brick Art Deco building situated on Prince Albert Road on the northern perimeter of Regent's Park. And although he was not permitted to leave the premises until the police arrived, at no time during his detention was he ever searched, supervised, locked in, or even placed under armed guard. At roughly 4.50am on Friday the 13th of February 1942, Cummings quietly crept into flat 24 on the first floor of St. James's Close, trying not to wake his buddies, who slept as soundly as seven men could, on wire-sprung cots with scratchy bedsheets. But as silent as he was, he was desperate to talk. Having shaken his bunk buddy awake, with Flight Sergeant Raymond Snellis noticing that it was still dark and that Cummings was fully dressed, he groggily asked, Where have you been? To which Cummings replied, I'm in the shit. Someone swapped me respirator and it was found at the scene of a crime. But being unimpressed and needing his extra hour of sleep, Snellis simply rolled over, farted and nodded off. And so, for almost a whole hour, amongst a sea of sleeping airmen, Cummins was unobserved. Having been alerted of his arrival, the police were on their way to question Cummings. But with this being a simple assault and robbery charge, with clear evidence, corroborated witness statements, and their only suspect being held inside a secure military location, given that the police had more pressing matters to deal with, like a sadistic maniac who so far had brutally murdered two women in the West End, with two more bodies still to be discovered, there was no real rush to arrest Cummings. So what he did during that hour would determine the course of the rest of his life. It would be the difference between employment and unemployment, prison and freedom, and even life and death. What did the police really know? Was this about the assault? Or was this about the murders? Did they only know about Greta Haywood? Had Catherine Mulcahy blabbed? Or had they linked him to the murders of Evelyn Hamilton and Evelyn Oatley, and would later link him to Margaret Florence Lowe and Doris Junet? Did the police know more than they were saying? Or could Gordon Frederick Cummings outwit the police? 
Time was on his side, but the clock was ticking. At 5.45am on Friday the 13th of February 1942, Detective Charles Bennett and Detective Sergeant Thomas Shepard arrived at Flat 27 at St James's Close to interview leading aircraftman Gordon Frederick Cummings, who was nonchalantly lying on his bunk, fully clothed and smoking a cigarette from a silver cigarette case. As he casually greeted the plain-clothed officers with a courteous, Good morning. Having established Cummins' identity using his military card, Detective Bennett stated, Your respirator has been found by the side of a woman who had been badly assaulted, and you answer the description of a man who she described. To which Cummins simply nodded and said nothing. Is that your respirator, sir? Detective Bennett inquired pointing to the black rubber gas mask in the beige canvas bag on his bunk, which just hours before Doreen Lytton had given him. But knowing full well that the serial number etched inside the gas mask didn't match his own, Cummins replied, No, I, I picked that one up at the Universal Brasserie. Someone must have picked up mine by mistake, so I took this one. With Cummins fitting the description, Detective Bennett stated, I'm arresting you for causing grievous bodily harm to Mrs. Greta Hayward on St. Alban Street on the evening of Thursday the 12th of February 1942. Cummings was cautioned and handcuffed, but made no reply. Calmly stubbing out his cigarette underfoot, the officers escorted their subject to the awaiting police car. His scuffed black boots making a very slight and unusually flat sound as he walked, which, amongst the hubbub, nobody noticed. At 9am a few hours later, having been transferred to West End Central Police Station, Cummins, who was composed, polite, helpful, and almost jokey at the ridiculousness of the situation, was questioned by Detective Inspector Clarence Jeffrey, who stated, I understand you deny being the man who assaulted Mrs. Hayward. It will therefore be necessary to hold you for an identification parade. But confronted with the overwhelming evidence against him, the gas respirator etched with his serial number of 525987. The witness statements by Greta Haywood and John Shine. The scuff marks on his left hand. The bloodstains on his shirt. And having found a small slip of paper in his greatcoat pocket, on which had been written Collindale 6622, which was Greta Haywood's home phone number. Cummins quickly confessed, stating, No, that, that won't be necessary. I am the man. I was drinking very heavily that night, uh, and I remember being with a woman in Piccadilly, but uh, I can't remember anything else that happened. I deeply regret what has happened, 
and I am willing to pay her compensation. Cummings reread his statement, confirmed its accuracy, and signed it with his left hand. As was standard protocol, Cummings agreed to be searched by Detective Bennett in the presence of D.I. Jeffrey, and his unremarkable personal effects included two one-pound notes in his wallet, three shillings and sixpence in his pocket, his RAF identity card, a few personal letters on RAF notepaper, a silver cigarette case, a greeny-blue comb with several teeth missing, and in the other gas respirator given to him by Doreen Lytton, he had stashed eight one-pound notes and a gold wristwatch. None of which seemed strange, suspicious, or even out of the ordinary. A worn leather wallet, a few crinkled pound notes, his military ID, a slightly battered silver cigarette case, an old broken comb, and a gold wristwatch, the type that married couples, like Mr. and Mrs. Cummins, would give each other on a special anniversary. To the untrained eye, they were nothing more than a random assortment of everyday items that most men would carry, and which meant nothing to the police. But to Cummings, they were personal items, too precious to dispose of or to destroy during a vital last hour alone. They were mementos of his morbid memories and souvenirs of his sadistic crimes. On the afternoon of Friday the 13th of February 1942, a grinning Gordon Frederick Cummings appeared at Bow Street Magistrates Court, where he was charged with a minor offence of causing grievous bodily harm to Mrs. Greta Haywood. As a condition of this charge, Cummings would be remanded in custody at Brixton Prison until his court appearance on the 12th of March, 1942. If found guilty of GBH, having already spent a month in prison awaiting his trial, although this custodial sentence would be inconvenient, Cummings would most likely be released owing to time served. Imposed with a small fine, and having missed the remainder of his three-week course in Regent's Park, with the Royal Air Force in need of strong young men to fight off the impending German invasion, Cummings would most likely be demoted and redeployed elsewhere, where he could retrain as a pilot. And once again, into the darkness of the West End, the Blackout Ripper would disappear. And as he sat there, smoking in the privacy of his small prison cell in Brixton Prison, as his slight grin slowly morphed into a beaming smirk, having outwitted both the Metropolitan Police, Scotland Yard, and left a bloody trail of terror across the West End, with four women brutally mutilated, and two women attacked, all in just four days. 
Cummins knew that he had literally got away with murder. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. On Friday the 13th of February, 1942, 28-year-old Royal Air Force Air Cadet Gordon Frederick Cummings, a married man with no prior convictions, was arrested and charged with causing grievous bodily harm to 30-year-old Greta Haywood in a suspected robbery in a back street just off Piccadilly Circus. Faced with insurmountable evidence, including an accurate description which identified Cummings as her attacker, having had drinks with him barely an hour before, her home telephone number, written in her handwriting, which was found inside his greatcoat pocket, and his military-issued gas respirator, discovered at the scene of the crime, inside which he had written his RAF serial number, 525-987. A number so unique, it led police directly to Cummings, who apologised, feigned memory loss, blamed the incident on drink and would be remanded in custody at Brixton Prison until his court appearance. With the trial being a legal formality, no loose ends to tie up, and the investigation into Greta Haywood being short, neat and complete, 
the Metropolitan Police could focus their efforts on more pressing matters, such as a murder. As on two consecutive days, on two different streets in London's West End, two unrelated women, Evelyn Hamilton and Evelyn Oatley, had been strangled, mutilated and posed by a serial sexual sadist in two sickening and unnervingly similar attacks. With their attacker's fingerprints not on record, no eyewitnesses to either murder, and the victim's last known movements being uncertain, the police knew they had to catch him quick before he struck again. But little did they know that he had already murdered two other women, Margaret Florence Lowe and Doris Junet, whose bodies were yet to be discovered, and that the police had already caught the Blackout Ripper. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, this is Murder Mile, and I present to you part seven of the full, true and untold story of the Blackout Ripper. Today, I'm standing outside the Central Criminal Court, more affectionately known as the Old Bailey, which stands on the medieval grounds of the infamous execution site of Newgate Prison, on the junction of Hoban Viaduct and Newgate Street. Destroyed by fire and rebuilt between 1902 and 1907, the new Old Bailey is a stunning Georgian courthouse made from sculpted blocks of pale Portland stone, designed in an imposing neo-baroque style, and stood on top of its 67-foot domed roof is a shimmering bronze statue of Lady Justice, a beacon of truth, with a sword in her right hand, scales in her left hand, and although she's supposed to be blindfolded, as Justice is meant to be blind, Lady Justice isn't as apparently, in the eyes of the sculptor, all ladies are fair, honest, and unbiased. <laughs> and although, as Britain's most high-profile court, it's hosted such sensational murder trials as Dr. Crippen, the Cray Twins, Ruth Ellis, and the Yorkshire Ripper, Today, its oak-panelled chambers mostly echo to the sounds of big business ducking hefty tax bills, failed pop stars insisting that they only snort sherbet, having recently been diagnosed with a severe sugar addiction, billionaires paying for the privilege to build a penis-shaped penthouse which overlooks Buckingham Palace, having previously been denied a passport, and undeniably dull TV nobodies, suppressing salacious news stories about their nightly love sessions with a royal, a tub of butter, a ring piece, and a large root vegetable. Mm. But it was here, on Monday the 27th of April 1942, in the bomb-damaged remains of the Old Bailey, that London's most prolific spree killer would be tried for murder. 
as Gordon Frederick Cummings sat in his prison cell, smoking and smirking. Something just didn't sit right with Detective Inspector Clarence Jeffrey. As although the assault on Greta Hayward was clear-cut, several unnervingly similar events of the case sent a cold shiver down his spine. Although the attack took place at night and in private, which many in the West End do, Cummings stole cash from Greta's handbag. And yet, according to her testimony, his wallet was stuffed full with close to 30 one-pound notes, an amount that was considerably more than his fortnightly wage. During the unprovoked attack on Greta, he didn't shove, kick, punch, or even threaten her with a weapon. Instead, he strangled her with his left hand. A slow and sadistic method of attack, rarely used by robbers and muggers, which is more akin to murderers and rapists. And across his middle fingers were the bloody scabs of an injury easily more than a few hours old, but most probably a few days. And upon his arrest, not only did Cummings have in his possession a gold watch, a silver cigarette case, and a greeny-blue comb with several teeth missing, none of which he said he owned, had seen before, or could account as to why they were in his pockets... But in the bright lights of West End Central Police Station, several blood splashes were visible on his brown shirt and blue tunic. And although she was bruised and unconscious, Greta Hayward didn't bleed. So whose was the blood? On the morning of Friday the 13th of February 1942, at around the same time that Cummings was arrested, feisty Paddington prostitute Catherine Mulcahy was examined by Dr Alexander Baldy, who confirmed that her injuries were consistent with strangulation. Giving the police a detailed description of her attacker, which was corroborated by her neighbours, Agnes Morris and Kitty McQuillan, and exactly matched Gordon Frederick Cummings. Having handed in the missing blue belt to his RAF tunic, on which were two specks of blood, feeling that the assaults on Greta Hayward and Catherine Mulcahy required further investigation, they were escalated to Chief Inspector Edward Greeno, one of the West End's most senior detectives, who also headed up the murder investigation into Evelyn Hamilton and Evelyn Oakley. But before Chief Inspector Greeno could even begin to consider Cummings as a viable suspect to two assaults and two unnervingly similar murders, two more bodies would be found. At 4.30pm, Having broken down the locked bedroom door at flat 4 at numbers 9 to 10 Gosfield Street, 
Detective Sergeant Leonard Blacktop discovered 43-year-old Margaret Florence Lowe. Her left-handed attacker had strangled her, posed the body, mutilated her using a variety of readily available household objects, and although rape hadn't occurred, he had violated her with a candle. Cash was taken, personal items were stolen, and once again, no one saw her murder or her murderer. And even though Superintendent Frederick Cheryl of Scotland Yard's Print Bureau had found three sets of his fingerprints, one on the base of the candlestick, one on the bottle in the kitchen, and one on the half-full glass of stout, which Margaret and her killer had shared, which he had then left on the mantelpiece. Her killer couldn't be identified, as with Cummings having been arrested for the first time that very morning, and his assault charge still pending, his fingerprints had yet to be put on file. At 7.50pm, having broken down the locked bedroom door to flat 1 at 187 Sussex Gardens, PC Payne discovered 32-year-old Doris Elizabeth Junet. Her left-handed attacker had strangled her, posed the body, and mutilated her using a variety of readily available household objects. But this time, he hadn't raped or violated her, as through sheer fear, she had wet herself. Cash was taken, personal items were stolen, and once again, no one saw her murder or her murderer. And although no fingerprints were found, Home Office Chief Pathologist Sir Bernard Spilsbury who conducted all four autopsies on Evelyn Hamilton, Evelyn Oatley, Margaret Florence Lowe and Doris Junet, confirmed that it was highly likely that all four murders had been committed by one man. There was no denying it. London's West End was in the grip of a serial sexual sadist and spree killer, who had murdered four women in just four days and with the press getting wind of the story, the police had to catch the blackout ripper before he struck again. But Chief Inspector Greeno already had a prime suspect in his sights. And better still, he already had him locked up in prison. On Saturday the 14th of February 1942, Detective Inspector Freshney interviewed Cummings at Brixton Prison to ascertain his whereabouts between Sunday the 8th and Thursday the 12th of February. And although the prisoner appeared pleasant, charming and helpful, his answers were deliberately vague and evasive. In summary, Cummings stated that these were his movements. Sunday the 8th of February the night that Evelyn Hamilton was murdered. Cummins visited his wife in Barnes, South London, said goodbye to her at 6pm, took a bus and a tube to Baker Street, 
headed to his flat at St James's Court and was in bed by 10pm. There is no mention of Maison Lyonnaise, Marble Arch or Montague Place in his statement. Monday the 9th of February, the night that Evelyn Oatley was murdered. Being on duty all day, he left his flat at just after 6pm, headed into Piccadilly with a red-headed corporal, got drunk, met two prostitutes later identified as Laura Denmark and Molly de Santos Alves, and headed back to his flat after midnight. And although partially true, there is no mention of Wardour Street in his statement. Tuesday the 10th of February. No known murders were committed by the Blackout Ripper that night. But being on duty all day, he finished at 6pm, went to the YMCA bar, and he was in bed by 9.30pm. Wednesday the 11th of February. The night Margaret Florence Lowe was murdered. Being on duty all day, he finished at 6pm, went to the YMCA bar and was in bed by 9.30pm. There is no mention of Piccadilly Circus, Soho or Gosfield Street in his statement. Thursday the 12th of February, the night of Doris Junet's murder and the attacks on Greta Haywood and Catherine Mulcahy. Being on duty all day, he left his flat just after 6pm, headed to the volunteer public house by Baker Street with a red-headed corporal, got drunk, headed into Piccadilly, met Greta Haywood at Brasserie Universelle, but he doesn't remember much after that. He ended up in bed with an unknown prostitute in Paddington, believed to be Doreen Lytton, arrived back at Abbey Lodge at 4.30am and was detained by the orderly corporal prior to the arrival of the police. In his statement, Cummings deliberately admitted to only being in the places where he knew he had been seen. He avoids any reference to the murder locations. And by repeatedly stating that he returned to his billets before curfew on all the other nights, with all of the air cadets at Abbey Lodge and St James's Close being unfamiliar with each other's names, faces and movements, having met barely one week before, he knew that the chance of anyone accurately confirming his precise whereabouts across that whole week in a major metropolitan city at wartime and during the blackout would be slim. With an incomplete timeline and no witnesses to accurately corroborate his whereabouts, the police were relying on one vital piece of evidence to either confirm or deny his story. The logbook. As an active military installation working under tight wartime conditions, the Royal Air Force dictated that no person was permitted to leave his or her station without signing in or out of the logbook first, using their name, rank and serial number, all of which was cross-checked 
using their military ID card in a visual inspection by an armed sentry. It was supposed to be a foolproof system. But with security amongst the cadets being lax, with many airmen signing in or out for each other, stuffing their beds with clothes to thwart the midnight bed check, and accessing their flats by an unguarded fire escape which led directly from the ground floor, often the logbook, into which you could write in either pen or pencil, was incomplete. When Detective Inspector Freshney examined each page of the logbook for Cummings' whereabouts, his heart almost stopped dead. The page for Saturday the 7th of February had been torn out. The page for Sunday the 8th had no entry for Cummings. On Monday the 9th, he had signed out at 6.20, but never signed in. The pages for Tuesday the 10th of February and Wednesday the 11th of February had no entry for Cummings at all. And on Thursday the 12th of February, he had signed out at 6.29, but never signed back in. Wherever Gordon Frederick Cummings was during that week was a mystery, which couldn't be unravelled by relying on eyewitness testimony or military records. And so far, in terms of conviction, the police had a lot of circumstantial evidence, but very little which would stick. With Cummins almost certain to be charged with causing the grievous bodily harm of Greta Haywood, the police's next steps were to confirm that Cummings, on the same night, had attacked Catherine Mulcahy, and to prove that both attacks were connected, and that this left-hander was a serial strangler. And no matter how small, slim, or seemingly insignificant, the overworked and understaffed detectives of the Metropolitan Police Force had to scrutinise every single piece of evidence they had, starting with his clothes, the spare gas respirator, and his money. On Sunday the 15th of February, Cummings' Royal Air Force uniform were removed from Brixton Prison and having spotted 13 small bloodstains on the shirt and the belt, they were sent to the police laboratory in Hendon for an examination which would take four days. Having traced Paddington prostitute Doreen Lytton, she confirmed that she had met Cummings in Piccadilly at roughly 2am on Friday the 13th of February, had gone back to her flat in Polygon Mews, and that she had given him her spare gas respirator, having found it the Saturday before. With its original owner having inked his army serial number of 823863 inside the gas mask, police confirmed it belonged to gunner Aubrey John King, of the 96th Field Regiment, who had lost it back in November 1941 and was stationed in Clacton-on-Sea, 70 miles away, during the full duration of the murders, ruling him out as a suspect. 
Upon his arrest, Cummings had £10 in his possession, £2 in his wallet and £8 in the spare gas respirator. But also, that evening, he had given Catherine Mulcahy 10 £1 notes, £2 on Regent Street, £3 in the taxi and £5 as an apology for attempting to strangle her, which she handed to the police as evidence. According to the paymaster's records, Cummings received his fortnightly wage of £12 on Saturday the 1st of February, which was distributed by pilot officer John Rowan from a fresh block of 500 £1 notes that he himself had withdrawn from the bank that very morning, meaning the serial numbers on the notes were all in an unbroken sequential order. On Sunday the 8th of February, six days before his next payday, with Cummings being broke, he was only able to borrow one pound off his wife. But by Monday the 9th, Felix Sands LeBron James, the red-headed corporal who Cummings had treated to pints and whiskies that night in Piccadilly, noted that he had 19 pounds on him. And yet, Cummings had no savings, no loans, no debts owing, no inheritance, and no other source of funds. With the paymaster having distributed each wage in alphabetical order, Pilot Officer Rowan checked the remaining banknotes of any cadet whose surname began with the letters B, C and D, and was able to accurately determine what the serial numbers of Cummings' banknotes would have been. The police cross-checked the serial numbers of the banknotes in evidence and confirmed that, of his original £12 wage, one £1 note was found in the bundle of eight which was stashed inside the spare gas respirator, along with the gold watch. Two £1 notes were given to Catherine Mulcahy, and a further two were found in the daily takings at Brasserie Universale and the Salted Almond. Without a shred of doubt, the police could prove that Cummings had strangled two women, Greta Haywood and Catherine Mulcahy, on the same night. Now they just needed to piece together a picture of his movements that week and to prove that Gordon Frederick Cummings was the Blackout Ripper. At 6.30pm on Saturday the 14th of February 1942, Detective Sergeant Leonard Crawford searched Flat 27 at St James's Close in Regent's Park. On his bunk in Room B, he found Cummings' kit bag, which was marked with his rank and surname, L.A.C. Cummings. And he found his spare blue tunic, which was missing a blue belt. In the left pocket of which was his identity discs, etched with his serial number of 525987, and in his right breast pocket, D.S. Crawford found a black fountain pen, engraved with the initials of D.J. On a hunch, 
Chief Inspector Greeno asked the victim's next of kin to identify three personal items found in Cummings' possession. Margaret Florence Lowe's 15-year-old daughter, Barbara, confirmed that the silver cigarette case was her mother's. And Henri Junet, Doris's husband, identified the greeny-blue comb with several teeth missing as Doris's, as well as the gold wristwatch, which he had brought in France in 1927 and had gifted to his wife on their wedding anniversary just four years prior. Within just three days, the police had conclusively linked Cummings to two stranglings and three murders, all within streets of each other in London's West End. And the evidence against him was escalating. Eager to cross-check his whereabouts, on Monday the 16th of February, Chief Inspector Greeno interviewed Cummings at Brixton Prison, stating... I'm conducting an inquiry into the murder of three women. And once again, although the prisoner was pleasant, charming and helpful, his answers were deliberately vague and evasive. Keeping a straight face as he calmly toked on a smoke, Cummings denied that he had ever been to Gosfield Street or Sussex Gardens, denied going to any flat with a West End prostitute, and denied he had ever seen the black fountain pen, the gold watch, or the silver cigarette case before. And yet, strangely, he admitted that Doris Junet's broken green-blue comb was his, even though it wasn't. And once again, confirming that his statement was true, and accurate. He signed it with his left hand, as across his middle fingers were a series of bloody scabs, all of which were at least a week old. Having noticed that his scruffy black boots made an unusually flat sound as he walked, Chief Inspector Greeno asked, Are those your RAF boots? To which Cummings nodded, grinned, and removed his size 8 boots. Whether the police had found his footprints at either of the crime scenes was irrelevant, as during that full hour that Cummings was left unsupervised in his flat, surrounded by sleeping airmen, in an attempt to outwit the police, he had crudely cut out the rubber soles of his RAF boots having hastily disposed of them and given no explanation why. With the interview over, Chief Inspector Greeno stated to Cummings that tomorrow, on Tuesday the 17th of February 1942, you will be brought to Bow Street Magistrates Court and charged with murder. Remaining calm, composed and almost cocky, Cummings replied, I'm to be charged with murder. Oh. Only to casually inquire, how many women did you say? To which Greeno replied, three. And as Cummings was led away to his cell, 
A smug grin spread across his face, knowing there were four. On Tuesday the 17th of February at 10am, at the back of Bow Street Magistrates Court, Gordon Frederick Cummings was charged with the murder of Doyce Junet. He was cautioned, but made no reply. As part of the formal process, Superintendent Frederick Cheryl of Scotland Yard's Print Bureau took Cummings' fingerprints and compared them to the left-handed thumbprint found on Evelyn Oatley's compact mirror, the left little fingerprint found on her can opener, and the left index finger found on the bottle and the glass of stout with Margaret Florence Lowe. All of which were a perfect match. And with Dr Davidson of Hendon Police Laboratory confirming that the 13 blood spots found on his blue RAF tunic, his blue belt and the left sleeve of his brown shirt were not Cummings' own blood, but that the blood type matched that of Doris Junet. Police could conclusively link Cummings to the attacks on Greta Haywood and Catherine Mulcahy, as well as the murders of Evelyn Oatley, Margaret Florence Lowe and Doris Junet. But sadly, not Evelyn Hamilton. And yet, it was then that the police were blessed with an amazing piece of good fortune. That same day, Cummings' bunkmate, Sergeant Keith Edward Moon, was cleaning out the kitchenette that they shared in Flat 27 of St James's Close, when he discovered, secreted in the top shelf of their fridge, a silver cigarette case which Cummings had hidden during his hour of solitude, and it contained a small photograph of a pretty blonde lady, and the case was etched with the initials LW. Concerned that this may be vital evidence, the cadets conducted their own search, and at 2.30pm, Corporal Gordon Arthur Freeman found in the kitchen bin the hastily sawn-off rubber soles to Cummins' black scuffed boots, a green and black pencil, and a handkerchief etched with the laundry mark of E2474. Chief Inspector Greeno asked those closest to the victims to identify two personal items found in Cummings' flat. Grieving widow Harold Oatley confirmed that the silver cigarette case etched with the initials LW belonged to his wife Evelyn Oatley who was also known as Lita Ward and that the black and white photo inside was of her mother Rosina and former chemist assistant 14 year old Bettina Grace Gray confirmed that she had loaned the green and black pencil to her manager Evelyn Hamilton just one week before with the handkerchief's laundry mark of E2474 verified by Thorpe Bay Laundry Company in Romford, which matched an identical set found in Evelyn Hamilton's suitcase, which had been left in her hotel room at the Three Arts Club in Marylebone, 
having also confirmed that the grey brick mortar found inside Cummings' own gas respirator matched the sample that the police had taken from the air raid shelter in Montague Place. The police now had more than enough evidence to go to trial, and they hoped to convince Cummings to confess. On Tuesday the 10th of March 1942, at the back of the Old Bailey, Cummings was charged with the murders of Evelyn Hamilton, Margaret Florence Lowe, Doris June, and the assaults on Greta Haywood and Catherine Mulcahy. To which he replied, Absurd! On Thursday the 26th of March 1942, at the back of the Old Bailey, Cummings was charged with the murder of Evelyn Oatley, to which he replied, That's ridiculous. Cummings denied all charges and gave no confession. On Monday the 27th of April 1942, 28-year-old Gordon Frederick Cummings was tried before Mr Justice Asquith and a jury of 12 men in Court 2 of the Central Criminal Court, also known as the Old Bailey. As was his prerogative, even in the face of overwhelming and irrefutable evidence against him, Cummins, in a mixture of either stupidity, confidence or arrogance, gave no evidence in his defence submitted no witnesses to back up his claims, didn't enter a plea of insanity, or put forward any mitigating factors like a history of mental illness. And facing almost certain death, he pleaded not guilty to all charges. If anything, as his face beamed bright with a contented grin, as mawkish crowds of spectators jostled in the gallery and rabid journalists jotted down his name in a legal defence entirely funded by the British taxpayer. Although brief, he actually seemed to relish his time in the limelight. In a trial which didn't even last the whole day, the jury only needed to deliberate for just 35 minutes before they came to a unanimous conclusion and found Gordon Frederick Cummings on the charge of four counts of murder, one count of grievous bodily harm and one charge of assault, guilty. And although he protested his innocence, his parents put forward several legal appeals and his wife applied for clemency Gordon Frederick Cummings, the West End's most infamous spree killer and serial sexual sadist, who was also known as the Blackout Ripper, was sentenced to death. On Thursday the 25th of June 1942, at a little before 9am, in the condemned man's cell in Wandsworth Prison, Cummings sat wearing itchy woollen prison-issue fatigues, which caused him to shift uncomfortably as he sat on a hard wooden chair. 
trapped by four cold stone walls, a barred window, and a steel door. The room was cold, basic, and simple. Sparsely furnished with very few comforts, not unlike the bedrooms of the many women he had mauled, mutilated, and massacred. But this time, there were no knives, razors, no candle, no curling tongs, and no can opener to occupy his endless hours. As all he had there was a bed with a sheet, a simple wooden chair, a table with a jug of water, a bucket to defecate in, and a large wardrobe, not unlike the kind that his victims filled with hats, coats, and handbags. But this particular wardrobe held a big surprise for Cummings. Which even he wouldn't expect. Having declined a final meal, instead supping back a glass of brandy, whether to settle his nerves, toast his life, or celebrate his crimes, Cummings sat with his back to the wardrobe, facing the pale white wall. With a sickly green hue, smoking and smirking, excitedly chatting away, as having had no company for the last three months, except his own dark thoughts. He was desperate to talk, but the guards said nothing. Having written a few farewell letters, Cummings knew that today was the day of his death. And that at precisely nine a.m., not a minute early and not a minute late, that he would be dead. But with no clock on the wall, no watch on his wrist, and the guards motionless and silent, as the morning sun of a bright new day raised up high into the sky, time dragged slowly for Cummins, as just like his victims. He would be forced to live with the terrifying agony of never knowing when his end would come. During those last days of his wasted life, having had many lonely nights to contemplate his killings, visualize his victims, and mull over the mutilation, full of horrifying images which would haunt their families forever. Cummins often visited the prison chapel to pray for his wife, his father, his mother, his brother, his friends, and especially for himself. But he never prayed for his victims or for forgiveness. Although his visitors were few, mostly consisting of close family, police officers, and a priest. Never once, in those three months of solemn reflection, did he ever confess to his crimes. And when asked why he did it, he simply replied, "I didn't." As in his mind, he was innocent. And as the morning dragged on, and time seemed to stall. The more his leg jiggled, his fingers strummed, 
and his charming facade dropped as he became even more impatient. And although he wouldn't know this, the time was just one minute to nine. In the briefest of moments, with a heavy clunk, the steel door of the cell would swing wide open, as his two flanking guards would sharply raise Cummings to his feet. In would swiftly walk the prison governor, the doctor and the chaplain, accompanied by a slight and almost debonair 30-year-old who would shackle the prisoner's hands behind his back. As Cummings would come face to face with a slim, short and unassuming man in a brown suit, with a kind face and a small wisp of hair on his head. This was Albert Pierpoint, his executioner. Just like Cummings, Pierpoint was a Yorkshireman. Just like Cummings, Pierpoint was synonymous with death. And just like Cummings, Pierpoint was charming, well-mannered and polite. And in his company, Cummings felt safe. But for those who were to die at his hands, his kindly demeanour was a false sense of security. And that's where the similarities ended. Pierpoint was a professional, whose precisely calculated, intricately rehearsed and swiftly performed executions were the epitome of efficiency, designed to be as humane and painless as possible. With the time from the prisoner hearing the cell door open, to their body dangling from the end of a rope, being less than ten seconds, and as a master of his art, his quickest was seven. Unlike his victims, Cummings wouldn't suffer a horrendously painful death, as a sadistic maniac slowly strangled every breath out of his trembling body crushing his throat and his vocal cords. As with joyous glaring eyes, his executioner clutched both sides of the stocking around his neck and pulled, choking every ounce of life out of him over several long, agonising and terrifying minutes. No, he wouldn't be mutilated, he wouldn't be violated and he wouldn't be posed. His loved ones wouldn't witness his dead dangling corpse, and his burial would be simple and dignified. With Harry Allen, the executioner's assistant, having shackled the prisoner's hands behind his back, as a prison guard slid aside the large wooden wardrobe, Cummings would be turned to face the dark secret behind it as barely ten feet from where he stood, was the execution chamber. There was no long walk and no green mile. Death had come to him. Being led into the cold stone chamber, barely forty feet wide, high and deep, the eerily empty room had pale green walls. A set of sprung trapdoors in the centre and a wooden beam across the ceiling, from which dangled a thick hemp rope, its end curled into a noose, measured precisely to fit Cummins' head. 
and as they would swiftly position Cummings onto the chalk-marked T, dead centre on the trapdoors, before he could even realise where he was, a white silken hood would be pulled down over his head. The silk-lined noose would be placed around his neck, and having precisely calculated the prisoner's 5 foot 9 inch, 11 and a half stone frame, Pierpoint would remove the bolt, and Cummings would drop. His 6 foot 3 inch fall, lasting less than half a second, and releasing 1,000 foot pounds of energy, as his motionless body was stopped from hitting the stone tile floor by the thick hemp rope, which would dislocate the second and third vertebrae of his neck as fast as a foot snaps a stick. As a legal requirement, his body would be left to hang for a full hour to ensure that he was dead. And with no cheers, no joy, and no applause, Cummins would be buried and Pierpoint would be paid £12. That would be the end of the Blackout Ripper. But before the strike of 9am, in his last minute alive, Gordon Frederick Cummings, the man who had terrified London's West End, brutally and savagely slaying four women and leaving two more scarred for life, continued to profess his innocence, gave no further statements, and made no confession. Instead, having stubbed out his cigarette, and huffing like a man who had better things to do, Cummings impatiently protests to his guards, Come on, let's get this done. And as the steel door opened, his arms were shackled, his wardrobe was slid back. His legs were secured. His head was hooded. His neck was noosed. And Pierpoint gripped the bolt. Amidst the irony that London that very morning was in the grip of an air raid, with a cacophony of sirens wailing, almost as a fond farewell to the West End's most sadistic spree killer, from underneath the heaving hood as his terrified breath quickened. With barely a second to utter his final words, the blackout ripper said, Nothing. On Thursday the 25th of June, 1942, at a few seconds after 9am, in the cold stone execution chamber inside Wandsworth Prison, the cruel life of the West End's most sadistic spree killer was cut short by a long drop and a sudden stop, as a second and third vertebrae of his neck was snapped, severing his spinal cord, and in an instant, 
the Blackout Ripper, was dead. With the trial concluded, the evidence archived, and the limp body of Gordon Frederick Cummings buried in a pine box, the news stories ceased, and his name was no longer plastered inside of every newspaper. As in the minds of the public and the press, the case was closed. But in a race to exploit the graphic details of his grisly crimes, one important question was never resolved. Why did he kill? Why did a seemingly normal, relatively handsome, 28-year-old man with a bright military career, a happy marriage, and a grammar school education, who was raised in a loving and respectable middle-class family, and had no criminal record, no drug issues, and no history of mental illness. Why did he strangle, pose, and mutilate four women across four days in London's West End? Trying to pin down who Cummings was is an impossible task. As some people say he was charming, pleasant, and polite, whereas to others he was rude, aloof, and arrogant. By the time of his death, he had given no confession. His statements were lies, and his wife and family totally believed in his innocence. So, why did he kill? Well, that's what we hope to explore in this episode. But I warn you now, there is no smoking gun, there are no certainties, and what we unearth may ask more questions than it answers. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, this is Murder Mile, and for the first time ever, I present to you the final part of the full, true and untold story of the Blackout Ripper. Gordon Frederick Cummings was born on the 18th of February 1914 five months before the start of World War I, in the small rural village of Earswick, a quiet, leafy hamlet nestling in the wilds of North Yorkshire. Raised in an idyllic setting, surrounded by fields, streams and buzzing bees, Cummins' childhood was the epitome of perfect for a young boy, as with trees to climb, fresh fruit to eat, and clean water to drink. He was a far cry from the industrial filth, poverty and squalor of the big cities. Being an adventurous boy who was eager to explore but was always constrained by the boundaries of his tiny world, with Earswick consisting of little more than a handful of thatched cottages, twenty families and a small school, Although his village was barely four and a half miles from the bustling city of York, for a quizzical and excitable boy, it must have seemed a world away. Raised in a quiet, aspirational middle-class house by his doting mother Anna, his strict schoolmaster father, John Robert, and his older brother, John Harvey, who, as the first-born son, had the honour of being named after his father, Gordon Cummings grew up with no sisters, 
no female friends and no close relatives. As with John Harvey being an intensely private man, who, as the schoolmaster, felt a certain sense of seniority over everyone else, and with Anna coming from Northumberland in the far northeast of England, Cummins had very few playmates and almost none who were girls. So, as an overactive, imaginative and frustrated young boy, stuck in a small friendless world, with no one outside of his own family to talk to, to play with or to learn from, Cummins drifted into daydreaming. Did it bother him that his brother was the firstborn and the favourite son? Did it matter that he knew very little about girls? And being the schoolmaster's son, was he bullied by the boys, teased by the girls, and allowed to get away with more than most? That we shall never know. But what he needed in his life was stability. And that's exactly what was missing. With the world in upheaval following World War I, the Cummins family went where the work was. So when John Robert became the schoolmaster of Vicar Pritchard's school in Llandovery in the southwest of Wales, they packed up, moved out, and once again, being uprooted, Cummins had lost the few friends he had. And as a new boy, in a new town, in a new country, he became an outsider. And being from a middle-class English family, in a Welsh working-class town, surrounded by people he didn't know, who spoke a language he couldn't speak, and saw words he couldn't read, as he withdrew into his own personal world, the more difficulty he had concentrating, the worse his academic record became. Which, for his father, being the schoolmaster, was deeply shameful. For anyone, those early teenage years are awkward enough. But for a hormonally charged Gordon Cummings, who lacked even basic social skills, a rudimentary knowledge of girls, and a sense of himself, it was around this time that being ashamed of his heritage and having a voice which was a mix of his father's native Yorkshire twang and his mother's natural Geordie, both being working-class northern accents. The Cummings adopted a mock-posh accent to distinguish himself. But being a divisive figure, who, like his arrogant father, exuded the sense of seniority of a man in denial of his own upbringing, this new accent only served to alienate Cummings further, and the more he was ignored, the more he began to resent others for making him feel inferior. Sadly, this hereditary sense of entitlement and a desire to live beyond his already generous means would bring a great shame to the family. When his father, a strict schoolmaster and a devout Catholic, was caught stealing money from the school. And although he professed his innocence 
never confessed, and later, under the weight of evidence, repaid all of the money. Being burdened by a sense of shame, he lost his job as the schoolmaster, and the family were forced to move back to England. Did his father's actions show Cummings that the world owed him more than he was given? Did it give him an appetite to live beyond his means, even if that meant stealing? And did his father's foray into criminality, his arrogant rejection of the rules, and his denial of his obvious guilt, show Cummins that he was entitled to do whatever he wanted, and better still, he could get away with it? In 1929, the Cummins family uprooted to the typically English and delightfully picturesque rural village of Harleston in the Northamptonshire countryside, five miles northwest of Northampton, which, with a smattering of cottages, families, and a school, was not unlike his birthplace of Earswick. Once again, they lived in the schoolhouse, with his father as the schoolmaster his mother as a housewife, his older brother training to be a teacher, and Cummins in his final year at Northampton Grammar School. And although his father had committed fraud, having not been prosecuted, and with very few repercussions for his actions, life for the Cummings family returned to normal. And even though they felt more at home here, as a very private family, they rarely socialised, and kept to themselves. Age 15 years old, having barely scraped through basic education at Northampton Grammar, with the help of his father's connections, Cummins attended Northampton College of Technology, where, even though he achieved a diploma in chemistry, he was described as lazy and easily distracted. Having blossomed into a handsome young man, a five foot nine inches tall, with pale blue eyes, fair wavy hair, and a charming smile. With an athletic physique and a well-rehearsed upper-class accent, Cummings had started to gain the attention of girls. But being over-eager, immature, and inexperienced, he found it difficult to be himself, and instead he would boast, lie, and show off. When Cummings got his first girlfriend, we shall never know. But as a lovesick teenager, desperate to explore this newfound world of feminine allure, although he was merely a student with a modest amount of pocket money, being eager to lavish his lady lovers with a fine array of gifts and trinkets, Cummings often lived beyond his meagre means. And to afford this lifestyle, he stole. And as much as those who knew him stated that he stole, up until his arrest for assault and murder, Gordon Frederick Cummings had no prior convictions, no criminal record, and not even as much as a black mark against his name. It's as if, like his father, money was paid and his crimes were forgotten. So what did Cummings' early foray into criminality include? Theft, assault, 
Cruelty? That we shall never know. Was he excited by these thefts? Apathetic towards his victims? And did robbery become an alternative means to achieve his goals when his parents said no to more money? And being described as a thrill-seeker and a daredevil, was adrenaline the drug of choice? Was his love all-consuming? And in his desperate bid for attention, did he injure his head and change his personality forever? Or was this arrogant, aloof and narcissistic young man already on course to become a mass murderer? In November 1932, being eager to see the world and to spread his wings, 18-year-old Cummings moved to his mother's home city of Newcastle-upon-Tyne in the northeast of England, where he worked as an assistant warehouseman for Ellswick Leather Goods. But being dreadful at his job, easily distracted by girls, and lacking any kind of concentration, he was dismissed after just five months. Moving back home, a few months later, Cummings started work at George Baker & Co., another leather manufacturers, this time in Northampton. But he barely lasted one year, as not only was he incapable of following simple requests, but his employers described him as abnormal and dense. And once again, he was too easily distracted by girls. In October 1934, 20-year-old Cummings moved to London and worked as an assistant chemist in another leather goods firm called Reptile Dressers at 48-50 Bermondsey Street, where once again he lasted just one year before being booted out for being lazy, slow and unfocused. Three jobs in two years. And yet... In statements which would strangely mirror those who knew him in his final posting at the RAF base in Regent's Park, at none of his workplaces did anyone recall Cummings having any friends. He was always short on money, always boasting, and eager to impress the girls. So, did moving to London one of the world's most expensive cities failed to curb his urge to live beyond his means. Did working in a leather tanning industry, a dangerous job which often meant that workers were exposed to highly noxious chemicals such as chromium, cyanide and mercury-based biocides, did this affect his personality or was the damage already done? And being based in Bermondsey, flanked by wharfs and factories on the south bank of the River Thames, and surrounded by dock workers, sailors, pubs and prostitutes. Is this where he found a fondness for hard drink and easy sex? Lacking any focus, Cummins may have squandered the next few years, drifting through a series of short-term, dead-end jobs in London's docks, splashing out on booze, chasing after babes and blowing his cash before he'd even paid his rent. But it was here, in the summer of 1935, that he met and fell in love with a 22-year-old secretary 
whose name was Marjorie Stevens. Very little is known about Marjorie, who she was, how they met, or what she looked like. And as a shy retiring person, who was very much a homebody, hoping to settle down in a nice house with a good man, being a steadying influence, it seemed as if Marjorie would be the making of Cummins. Marjorie and Gordon married on the 28th of December 1938 at Paddington Registry Office on Harrow Road. Oddly, just a ten-minute walk where Evelyn Hamilton and Doris Junet would be murdered. By which time, Marjorie had been promoted to a theatre producer's secretary, Cummings had changed careers, and they both had moved in together into a rented first-floor flat at 21 Westmoreland Road in the leafy suburb of Barnes, southwest London, which they shared with Marjorie's sister, Frida. In a rare statement, recorded after the trial, the intensely private Marjorie described their marriage as very, very happy, and that her husband has never been anything but kind and tolerant to me in every respect. He is a normal man who does not consort with other women, and he is certainly not a sex maniac or a pervert, further stating that he is not a drunkard. Occasionally he would binge, but when he got drunk, he would just become quiet, withdrawn, and would pass out. Marjorie remained faithful, married to Cummins, and maintained his innocence until the day he died. And although they wanted a family, in the four years of their marriage, they had no children. Shortly after meeting Marjorie, Cummins quit the graft of the leatherwork industry and enlisted in the Royal Air Force, a noble profession with regimented training, a regular income, and even though he was stationed right across Britain, he would regularly travel back to London's West End to visit Marjorie. So, with him being regularly billeted across the far-flung parts of Great Britain, did this cause a rift in their relationship? Was their marriage not as harmonious as she claims, with their marital bed being icy cold? Was this why they didn't have children, or was he suffering from impotence? And was it during these regular weekend visits to the West End that Cummins started visiting Soho prostitutes. Although the Royal Air Force kept the easily distracted Cummings in a strict routine of tight schedules, tidiness and discipline, just like his fractured childhood, he rarely stayed in one place for more than a few months, as aircraftman Cummings was posted to several RAF bases in as many years. Unlike his previous employment at the Leather Tanners, his commanding officer described Cummings' conduct as exemplary, that he was efficient at his job and that he was never known to complain. And here he would remain in military service for eight years. But, as before, being unable to make friends, eager for attention and desperate to disguise his true self, 
His commanding officer also added that Cummings was boastful, cunning, prone to lying, fond of drink, and that he was morally loose. Initially stationed at RAF Felixstowe on the south coast of England, Cummins was a flight rigger, part of number 85 RAF maintenance unit based in Folkestone Harbour, who assembled the airframes for seaplanes. As before, by adopting a posh accent and upper-class mannerisms, with his back straight and his nose in the air, as well as claiming that he was well-educated, which he wasn't, pretending that he spoke French, which he didn't, and professing to be wealthy, even though he was always broke, Cummings got the nickname of the Count. Next, Cummings was posted to RAF Helensborough in Dumbartonshire, Scotland, a recently opened top-secret facility known as the Marine Aircraft Experimental Establishment, where, once again, being disliked, deceptive, and boastful of his many conquests with women, Cummings had become known as the Duke. And as always, he was broke. Next, Cummings was posted to RAF Catterick, an aircrew training base for hurricanes and spitfires, back in his home county of Yorkshire, where the Count was widely known to be a boozer, a womanizer, a liar, and with robbery and theft having become a regular part of his routine to purchase gifts and trinkets to impress the ladies. Cummins had bought himself a gun. By April 1941, just ten months before his killing spree, Cummings was posted to RAF Fighter and Bomber Command in Colherne, Wiltshire, in the west of England, where, having bragged to the locals in the White Hart, the Six Bells and the Fox and Goose public houses that he was the black sheep in a well-to-do family, he was nicknamed the Honourable Gordon Cummins. And although he was notoriously broke, somehow Cummings would always come into money, which he would lavish on the ladies. With Cologne being a small rural village built around an airbase, on his evenings, Cummings would travel to the city of Bath, just eight miles away, where he would regularly frequent local brothels and places of ill repute such as the Red Light District on Quiet Street, and infamous prostitute hangouts at the Royal Hotel, the Francis Hotel and the Christopher, as well as a notorious cafe known as the Hole in the Wall, which was strictly out of bounds for military personnel. During those few months that Cummings was in Wiltshire, two women were robbed and beaten by a fair-haired airman in the village of Ford, just three miles northeast of Cologne, and several ladies' handbags were stolen in the Hole in the Wall Cafe, again by a fair-haired airman. Sadly, no positive identification of the man was made, and by the time that Bath Police had begun the investigation, Cummings had been reposted to RAF Predanac in Cornwall where once again, the Count 
having claimed to be nobility, became a member of the prestigious Blue Peter Club in Mullion, and having inveigled himself into a trusted position with the proprietor, he siphoned off booze, supplying free drinks to the local ladies. And it is said, he stole what was then £1,000 worth of jewellery from the apartments above. But for whatever reason, no formal complaint was made about Cummins to the police. So were these the only criminal acts which Cummins committed? A handful of thefts and a smattering of assaults in the pursuit of money and trinkets to impress his lady friends? Or had he progressed to being a prolific thief, able to bluff and bribe his way out of any conviction? That we shall never know. His final posting was at Abbey Lodge, known as Number 3 Aircrew Receiving Centre in Regent's Park, where he was engaged in a three-week course to train as a pilot. Starting on the 2nd of February 1942, just one week before the murder of Evelyn Hamilton. And having trotted out a familiar tale of him being a wealthy black sheep, within his first week, Cummins had become notorious for being a liar, a thief and an oddball, who none of the airmen either trusted or liked, especially when he tried and failed to buy himself another gun. Prior to his execution, Cummins was examined by Hugh A. Grierson, senior medical officer at Brixton Prison, in which he stated that there was no history of insanity in the family and that Cummings had no known mental health issues, no history of violence and no obvious hint of cruelty to either people or animals in his nature. All of which was corroborated by his father, his mother and his wife. During the examination, Cummings was lucid, rational and polite. And although he was unemotional throughout, he denied suffering from blackouts, memory loss, drunkenness or any sexual perversions. He was also tested for VD, syphilis and all known STDs and STIs, which came back negative. So. Who was Gordon Frederick Cummings, and why did he kill? Well, all four of his murder victims, Evelyn Hamilton, Evelyn Oatley, Margaret Florence Lowe, and Doris Junet, all had money and personal items stolen. So if his impetus to kill was thefts to obtain fancy trinkets, like silver cigarette cases and a gold watch for his lady friends, why did he keep them? And why did he steal such valueless items as a handkerchief and a broken comb? If Cummins didn't have a prior history of cruelty, why would he, as a man who supposedly committed several assaults, robberies and thefts, why would he escalate to strangulation, torture, mutilation and murder in a matter of months? Was he secretly a sadist? Was there an incident which caused him to snap? And as a man who constantly craved the attention of women, why did he hate them so much? 
Cummings was clearly a man afflicted by erectile dysfunction. As at each murder scene, sex either didn't take place, or if it did, he didn't climax, as the condoms found on the floor were spent and empty. Impotence is extremely common amongst rapists, and as the attacks escalate, the sex becomes less important, as their overriding desire is to overpower, to control and to humiliate, with many turning to strangulation and murder. So did Cummings have a prior history of rape, which went unreported? A key element to all of his murders were his victims' humiliation. He would rob them, strangle them, and mutilate them. But more importantly, he would pose them, with their bodies naked, their breasts exposed, their legs left wide open, as their bloodied and ripped corpses stared blankly towards the door. And yet, all of these injuries occurred after he had attempted sex. But why? I want to show you an incident which occurred on the night of Monday the 9th of February 1942 at 11pm, the night that Evelyn Oatley was murdered. On the western corner of Piccadilly Circus, on the junction of Regent Street, Cummins, dressed in his blue military tunic and dark greatcoat, stood with the red-headed corporal bartering for sex with two Soho prostitutes, a brunette called Molly de Santos Alves and a blonde called Laura Denmark. And as Laura escorted Cummings past Café Monaco, she waved to a dark figure in a bright red jumper who was smoking a cigarette as she struggled to stay warm against the cold wintry wind. She was a working girl that Laura knew only as Lita Ward, but whose real name was Evelyn Oatley. Being a 22-year-old pretty petite blonde, Laura Denmark was exactly Cummings' type, and he wasn't shy of showing her his affection, as he unsteadily stumbled with her down Old Compton Street towards her Frith Street flat having sunk back one too many Canadian whiskies in Brasserie Universelle. Situated on the first floor of 47 Frith Street, above Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club today, Laura's tiny first floor flat was sparsely furnished, with just a bed with a sheet, a table with a candlestick, a washstand, a packet of razors, some hats, clothes, curling tongs, and a collection of kitchen cutlery and as she popped a shilling in the coin slot of her electric fire to warm the flat up, they started to undress. As Laura lay on the double divan bed, naked except for a pair of black stockings, Cummins held in his right hand a condom. As his left hand feverishly bobbed up and down, inside the small tent of his white cotton pants, fiddling with his soft flaccid penis as he leered at Laura's nakedness, trying to get himself hard. The more he tugged, the less it grew, 
and the greater his frustration got, as desperation etched across his shamed face and his cheeks flushed red. As with a deep sigh of defeat, he said, No, it's gone. And as a man who, many said, was unemotional, Laura sensed sadness in his eyes. Taking pity on him as his limp and shriveled penis lay motionless, Laura sidled up beside Cummins on the bed. A caring arm wrapped around this distraught man, placing a tender kiss on his cheek, as her head gently rested on his shoulder as they sat in silence, soaking up the warmth of the fire. And for the next half an hour, they chatted, they laughed, they joked, and enjoyed each other's company. Months later, during his trial, Laura described Cummings as polite, courteous, and a real gentleman. He seemed a very decent sort of chap, and was very respectful to me. Feeling more comfortable in her presence, as Cummings stroked her blonde hair, his penis swelled, and as the tent of his pants bobbed further and faster, with a grip, a grimace, and a groan, he was done. With a relieved exhale, Cummings apologised to Laura, saying, I'm sorry for keeping you a long while. It must have been the drink. They then dressed, walked back to Piccadilly Circus, where he shook her hand, politely said, I wish you all the best, and I hope you earn more money tonight. And with that, he was gone. This moment occurred one hour before Gordon Frederick Cummings brutally murdered Evelyn Oatley. So this begs the question, why was he so tender with women like Laura Denmark and Doreen Lytton, who he shared a cup of tea with? And yet, he would brutally torture, mutilate and humiliate Evelyn Hamilton, Evelyn Oatley, Margaret Florence Lowe and Doris Junet. At a critical moment in the night's nuptials, was his manhood mocked? Is this the difference between each woman, whether or not they scoffed at his lack of sexual prowess? Did a word, a look, or even a simple gesture spark a rage inside him, triggered by an unknown incident in this defiantly arrogant charlatan who believed in his own superiority? Or were these attacks entirely random? That we shall never know. After his execution, unable to believe that a man with no history of violence would suddenly go on a killing spree, murdering four women and attacking two others in as many days, the detectives of Scotland Yard examined their cold cases and found two unsolved murders with eerie similarities. 
On Monday the 13th of October 1941, 19-year-old shop assistant Mabel Church waved goodbye to her friend at Charing Cross Station. The next day, demolition workers found her naked, strangled body in a bombed-out, derelict house on Hampstead Road, just a few roads east of Regent's Park. On Friday the 17th of October 1941, 49-year-old Edith Eleonora Humphreys was strangled and bludgeoned to death in bed, in her flat on Gloucester Crescent, just two streets northeast of Regent's Park. In both instances, their assailant was never arrested, questioned or identified. In both instances, they were robbed of money and personal items. In both instances, there was nothing that seemed to connect these women. In both instances, they were strangled within days and streets of each other. And even though, during that week, Cummings was stationed 98 miles away in RAF Culhern in Wiltshire, just like Abbey Lodge, there was no accurate record of his movements in any logbook. As with most air bases, it was common for airmen to hitchhike to and from London, so if he did travel, his journey went unrecorded. And with Cummins regularly visiting his wife Marjorie at her workplace on the Strand, which is just a few streets south of Piccadilly Circus, not only would this put him within walking distance of Regent's Park, but also on the same road as Charing Cross Station, where Mabel Church was last seen. Posthumously, Cummins was considered a viable suspect by the police in both cases. But with very little evidence, no charges or conviction could be brought against him. There's no denying that Gordon Frederick Cummings was the epitome of a psychopath, a habitual liar who showed no emotion for his victims, no remorse for his actions, gave no confession for his crimes, and had a single-minded drive to fulfil only his own desires. And yet, somehow, by becoming a different person to different people, Cummings could be both sweet and sadistic, charming and cruel, tender and a torturer, by being opposite sides of the same personality. Even during his trial, when he was faced with insurmountable evidence against him, Cummings was less interested in defending himself than he was of catching the eye of any girl in that courtroom. Was Cummings so arrogant that he truly believed that he was innocent? Was Cummings such a daydreamer that he could no longer tell the difference between right and wrong? Or, as a lonely boy with very little experience of girls, who was raised by a doting mother, a self-righteous father, who stole to fund a lavish lifestyle, a crime for which he was never convicted, did these minor moments shape an ordinary boy into a sadistic maniac? who believed that he could literally get away with murder. 
And finally, if the killing spree of Gordon Frederick Cummings wasn't a snap decision, but instead it was an act of selfish greed which slowly manifested itself over the 28 years of his life, the real question that we should be asking is how many more women were attacked and murdered by the Blackout Ripper. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to Amazon.com slash news ad free. That's Amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.